0: My guest today on Operator's Manual is Paul Gu, co-founder of Upstart. Paul, thanks for coming to the show. Thanks for having me. So, Paul, to to start, could you give our listeners just a quick overview of, of what Upstart is? Upstart is an online lender at its core, but what really differentiates us
1: is our focus on machine learning. Our core belief in founding the company was really that There is a huge opportunity in finding people who are undervalued by traditional credit models, things like the FICO score, um, that miss a lot of people who would otherwise be good borrowers or cause a lot of people to end up with really high interest rates, and that we could use alternative data and machine learning to find ways to identify those undervalued borrowers and get them much lower rates. So we've done that in a number of ways, but mostly by
0: partnering with banks to offer personal loans online. Got it that's fascinating um i want to dive into upstart later on but right now i, I want to rewind the clock and and take it back to um kind of back to the college where we first met and help me understand the sort of uh, key experiences that led you to to co-founding upstart
1: yeah so um let's see back in uh what well, what year was it 2010 uh i uh, I was in college um, uh, at Yale with uh, with with you, and um, uh, thinking about um, uh, thinking about uh, starting a company at at some point in the future. Um, at that point, it was a pretty remote uh, sort of dream that uh, didn't really have a lot of uh, a real basis to it, other than uh, just something I wanted to do at at some point. And um, Ended up applying for uh, this fellowship program uh, that I heard about called uh, Peter Thiel's 20 Under 20 Program, basically a grant program to leave school and start a company. Uh, it was the first year of this and, and a pretty sort of crazy idea at the time. And um, a couple of friends and I uh, got interested in it and ended up applying. Um, and we were very fortunate uh, to win, and um, that was really the, the catalyst for for making the leap and uh, and jumping off the traditional career ladder into uh, into really starting something. Um, I think at yeah. the time, um, Yale and probably a lot of other East Coast schools didn't have a very well developed um, startup or, or sort of technology um, career path, and so it felt like much more of a leap. I, I think, frankly, if Um, uh, without the fellowship, I probably would have gone down, uh, the sort of quantitative finance track, which I think would have been great in a lot of ways, certainly intellectually very interesting, but, um, I, I sort of always had a desire to take the same concepts and apply it to a problem that would have some real consumer impacts and, and, and solve some real problems. And if I could get to, um, start a company and do something, uh, more independently and and sort of faster moving, that would
0: be even better. Yeah, that's fascinating. I actually remember sitting in—I want to say it was Calhoun or one of the dining halls—and you were talking about applying for the Teal Fellowship. And I remember thinking, like, why would you apply for this thing? Why, <laughs> why don't you just go start the company now? Um, like, how did how did you even find out about it, and and what was the experience like? Yeah, I mean I,
1: I I think literally a friend sent me a link to uh the, probably a, a story about, you know, this crazy guy who was going to pay people mm-hmm. to drop out of college um mm-hmm. and uh and so it was kind of just a crazy idea um but uh for me, you know, I think it was it I think its most its greatest value um was really the sort of forcing function for um for for making the leap. I think that's a pretty mm-hmm. hard thing to do especially when you're, you're on this path that feels very secure, very sort of well understood. And, um, you know, for a long time, you've kind of just been completing these incremental milestones that are very well defined and uh, that you've had some success with. I think it's a, it's a hard thing to walk away from without some mm-hmm. some kind of discrete catalyst. And um, mm-hmm. that was that catalyst for me. Um, certainly very helpful in terms of, you know, having, uh, having a bit of financial support, having uh, you know, a bit of a community, but I think, uh, you know, it's real value was the forcing function to, to jump off and get started.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how did you, w- were there a few companies you tried starting before you came to upstart? How did, w- what's the sort of genesis of upstart? Yeah. So, um,
1: when I left school to, um, take the fellowship, um, there, uh, there sort of wasn't, a. Really fleshed out idea of, of what I was going to do, and and so again, you know, comes back to that sort of jumping off. Like you probably wouldn't um, uh, decide to drop out of college when you didn't yet have a clear idea of what you wanted to do. But there's a bit of a mm-hmm. circular thing where you probably wouldn't figure out what you wanted to do unless you were really invested in 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 figuring out what that was. And um, mm-hmm. and so uh, when uh, when I got started, um, as I said, I had actually applied for the fellowship with a couple of friends. We were just kicking around some some ideas, and so first we started mm-hmm. out with. Um, uh thinking that we would do something in the education space um, something about uh, maybe using uh, machine learning to help people uh, learn better and, and learn smarter something like that and incidentally one of my friends ended up uh, continuing in uh, in that sort of uh, ed tech, uh space and, and path um uh, then uh, uh we we sort of I guess you could loosely say worked, um, though, you know, Mm -hmm. in in hindsight, in comparison to what it actually feels like to work on something, I really would just say that was kind of like playing around with some ideas. Um, Then we got Mm -hmm. to thinking, well, no, you know, we weren't really too excited about that idea, Um, pivoted to something else that lasted probably uh, another couple of months, and then pivoted to yet something else, which lasted maybe a Mm -hmm. few months more. Um, But really, Mm -hmm. there were a series of things all pretty different from each other, um, Mm -hmm. that, uh, each lasted, uh, I would say, uh, in the span of months and, Mm um, uh, pretty quickly got to this point where after about nine months, it was like, uh, there was sort of a moment of reflection of like, okay, I really don't know what I'm doing. And I think I'm sort of jumping into, um, ideas too fast, almost like I was just trying to start a company for the sake of starting a company and instead of mm-hmm. um, uh, thinking a little more deeply about what kinds of problems I was really excited by and could add real value to. Um, mm-hmm. So then uh, after that, there was probably a, a, a good period of maybe three to six months of, of a, a little bit taking a step back and thinking, um, uh, and just doing more reading, uh, sort of thinking about um, the kinds of problems that that I was excited about and that I felt like I was a little more uniquely positioned uh, to work on. Um, mm-hmm. and uh, And so that sort of ultimately got me back to uh, some of the things that that now, in hindsight, seem very obvious uh, to me as as things that would make sense for for me to work on. And mm-hmm. um, started thinking about um, uh, the sort of well, I guess what you could call the first version of, of Upstart, which is pretty different than what it is today. it Was the notion mm-hmm. of um, income share agreements, um, mm-hmm. and it really stemmed from you know reading a lot about some of the uh, some of the problems that uh, people. Um early in their careers faced with sort of this lack of capital, but then uh, knowing that in the future they would have it and not really having a good way to bridge that gap. And then on the other mm-hmm. side, there's sort of being a series of academic papers on on this idea of income sharing being a good theoretical solution that had um, sort of good uh, risk uh, risk mitigation properties for for mm-hmm. both sides. and um mm-hmm. so ended up uh, ended up thinking about this, starting to, um, idea and and build some sort of simple models of of how it could work, and um, then was very fortunate to meet my now co founders Dave and Anna, um, who are thinking about mm-hmm. a similar thing. And uh, back in 2012,
0: mm-hmm. we got started. Mm-hmm. Got it. So the the first remind me of the first product. Yeah. So income share
1: agreements. Um, a basic idea was we would give you a certain amount of money uh, in exchange mm-hmm. for. A certain fraction of your income over the next ten years. So, for example, mm-hmm. we might give you twenty thousand dollars in exchange for two and a half percent of your income over the next ten years. Um, mm-hmm. And so, in some ways, it was like a loan. Uh, what we came to do later, um, mm-hmm. but uh, but obviously different in, in a kind of uh, in a kind of interesting way. Um, and mm-hmm. the the appeal of the idea was really well with a loan you've got this big risk that you take on. You suddenly owe twenty thousand dollars, and if you can't pay it, then, you know, it can be really bad for your credit. It can, you can lead to mm-hmm. bankruptcy. Whereas mm-hmm. if you owe two and a half percent of your income, well, if you take mm-hmm. a couple years to not work, um, if mm-hmm. you decide to start a company from grad school, whatever it is, then, mm-hmm. um, yeah, the sort of the, the payments move w- up and down with you. And so it has this sort of mm-hmm. really nice, uh, risk hedging property. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, it didn't work, but, uh, but it mm-hmm. was a super interesting idea and it's, it's where mm-hmm. we started out. And, and in some ways it was great because it, uh, it, it let us, um, build some things that, it, uh, it obviously led to, uh, my meeting, my co-founders. Um, so mm-hmm. a lot of good things resulted from that, but ultimately
0: did not work. Yeah. And who were the, the early borrowers there? Um, and, and why didn't it work?
1: Yeah. Well, um, I, I was user number one. Um, so mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> there's a handful of people out there who, who own maybe, uh, one to 2% of my, my income at the moment. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. so, uh, pretty interesting. Uh, but yeah, it was, um, it was typically people in their twenties, uh, who, yeah. um, uh, who didn't have a lot of, uh, money just to, to begin with, who, uh, typically wanted to do something a little bit, uh, Irregular, so maybe they wanted to take a couple years um, before starting a job. Maybe they wanted mm-hmm. to start a company. Maybe they were sort of mm-hmm. um, going to a coding boot camp, something that sort of mm-hmm. uh, would delay the uh, the onset of regular income uh, in a way mm-hmm. that um, would make this extra valuable for them mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. a loan uh, much less viable. So mm-hmm. um, that was that was the sort of early set of users um, mm-hmm. we uh, we did. Uh, a few million dollars of of these agreements, so it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't a total failure. There definitely was mm-hmm. interest, and um, I would say uh, uh, disproportionately much interest from uh, from the media. So we we mm-hmm. got a lot of articles written about us. Got to go on, mm-hmm. you know, CNBC and Bloomberg. It was mm-hmm. sort of this really interesting idea, but um, mm-hmm. but ultimately, actually, not an idea. A lot of consumers. Uh, really bought into because it was just so weird. It, it was very confusing. Mm-hmm. It was hard for people mm-hmm. to know, you know, am I getting mm-hmm. a good deal or not? And even though we were doing all this work in the back end to to do the math and try to give a fair offer, uh, of course, mm-hmm. there's no good way from a consumer standpoint to know if you're getting a fair offer. You'd be like, mm-hmm. okay, you know twenty one thousand four hundred dollars for two point seven four percent of my income over the next ten years. Am I getting screwed mm-hmm. or is that a great deal? Like I had no mm-hmm. idea and yeah. you know, to find out you have to plug it into an Excel spreadsheet. And if that's, you know, an answer for a mainstream consumer product, it's probably not going to succeed.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. I think it's interesting to compare this to other companies that are currently doing ISAs, like, you know, Lambda School or, you know, App Academy, where the, you know, it's it's sort of like they almost lend you $15,000, which is the the, the sticker yep. price of their course. Um, but then of course, you know, as soon as you're done with the course, you immediately go into a very high-paying job as a software engineer. What when you were loaning people about, you know, say twenty thousand dollars, what were they doing with that money?
1: Yeah, there, there was there was a really wide variety. I mean, our idea was that um, you could use this for for really anything. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, there was sort of one block of people, as I mentioned, who really were using it as uh, sort of uh, lifestyle support while they went and started mm-hmm. a company. There was mm-hmm. one block of people who actually were using it for coding boot camps. That actually, you know, before there was Lambda School, there there were people kind of piecing it together by themselves. Um, so mm-hmm. that definitely was was a use case. Mm-hmm. Um, there were um, there were people uh, just using it for uh, this kind of wonky use case that we we kept pitching, which was just this idea of uh, of consumption smoothing. Uh, this kind of very mm-hmm. wonky economic term that basically means mm-hmm. when you're old, you're going to have more money but mm-hmm. less, you know, whatever time and energy to spend it. And when you're young, mm-hmm. you're in the opposite set. So why not smooth it out and um, mm-hmm. do it in a way that's uh, risk-free for you? And so there were mm-hmm. just people doing that. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so I would say those were, those are three of the sort of common use cases, but we definitely saw that, saw the coding bootcamp one um, and, uh, and and really saw a pretty wide variety of, of things people did.
0: Mm-hmm. And how did you, when you guys decided that it wasn't working out, how did that, Articulate itself from a quantitative perspective. Was it like, hey, our our CAC is just way too high?
1: Yeah. So you know, to, to be honest, we never really got to the scale where where we were so worried about measuring the CAC. I I, I wish we mm. did. I think uh, you know, that that would have been more success than we had. But uh, but mm. you know, we were constantly at the scale where where you know you could sort of just like count on one hand how many users you were getting at a time, like over the course mm. of of, of a week. And, you know, we'd be like, mm-hmm. wow, we got, we mm-hmm. got one user today and it that mm-hmm. would be a real win. And then what you'd mm-hmm. find is that at that scale with every user you were, you know, it was like the founders getting on the phone or like mm-hmm. going, going in person to meet someone mm-hmm. to try to explain to mm-hmm. them, like why the ISA was such mm-hmm. an awesome concept. And, you know, even mm-hmm. some of the language I've used in, in this conversation probably sounds pretty weird. If, if you aim mm-hmm. to be a mainstream product, it were like mm-hmm. consumption smoothing, risk hedging, you know, it was like these, uh, these very esoteric um, concepts Mm -hmm. that, um, that that were very cool and intellectually interesting, but, but just, Mm -hmm. uh, but just hard for a lot of people to grok if they're not, you know, an economics nerd, right. And so, Mm -hmm. um, uh, so I think that was definitely one telling sign, you sort of just had to spend a lot of Time uh, deeply with every user to, to make them understand what it is uh, mm-hmm. this product was, and mm-hmm. uh, and then you would sort of notice that typically people uh, uh, unless unless they really sort of gravitated towards that concept or really understood it and, and or were willing to sort of do the work with a spreadsheet just couldn't quite get there, um, mm-hmm. and so that that was that was definitely a, a pretty strong signal. I think mm-hmm. there were um, you know stepping back a little bit. We we start started getting kind of to the bottom of the barrel in terms of like ideas to really uh, produce that ten x effect. I mean, at first you're like, okay, well maybe it's just that not enough people hear about it. Maybe you 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 kind of check, oh, but you know, actually we're actually getting a lot of press. We're running ads now, and we've got thousands of people visiting the website, uh, getting exposure to this, but they're not really converting. Um, mm-hmm. And then. You know you, you know, you start scraping the bottom of the barrel when your answer for, well, we're at one user a day, we need to get to 10, your, your answer is like, oh, maybe if we change the color of the, you know, of the <laughs> sign up button from red to blue, it'll do the trick, right? And you start A-B testing things like this and you're like, well, that doesn't make any sense. That's like what you do when you're at yeah. scale, you're trying to get a 10% lift, not when you're at one user trying to get to 10 um, Yeah. And uh and so uh so I, I think we we iterated on that for probably uh a year and a few months and 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 probably in hindsight, I think that was too that was too long. Um I think mm-hmm. we were fortunate to have some capital to to kind of tide us through um that period of time um before we 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 sort of figured that out and um and responded to the market feedback. Um, but there were definitely a few months where I think it was pretty painful. We were um we were a little too uh invested in in our own cleverness and um mm-hmm. uh and i think it, it was great that we were able to get away
0: from that that's fascinating um and could you talk a bit about who your co-founders are
1: yeah um so i've two co-founders
0: uh, dave and anna uh super lucky
1: to have met them uh really mm-hmm. um uh really sort of lucky and, and, and almost uh quintessentially silicon valley story of friend of a friend mm-hmm. of a friend of mine uh introduced mm-hmm. me uh, mm-hmm. t- to Dave, and we really got introduced because of the ISA notion, uh, the income share mm-hmm. agreement notion. It was mm-hmm. um, it was a r- rare enough concept that very few people had experience with it. and this this one particular um, woman that I got introduced to, uh, her name's Noga. she um, she had been one of the few people with real experience doing this. and um, and so I got introduced to her. And, and Dave did too um, around a similar time and so she connected the two of us uh, Dave is um, uh, someone with uh, uh, quite a bit of experience he's uh, I think been he was at Google for I want to say almost 10 years uh, before uh, uh, before leaving and um, he I met him just as he was uh, preparing to to leave Google and uh, and mm-hmm. start a company with um, mm-hmm. with an eye towards doing something very very similar um, mm-hmm. and we ended up getting to talking and had uh, I would say 80% overlap of what we were thinking, 20% non-overlap, and and and, mm-hmm. and sort of both found uh, found some some room to uh, improve some of the ideas that we started with. Um, mm-hmm. Anna had worked with Dave at Google also for a number mm-hmm. of years, um, and mm-hmm. so um, for me, uh, super helpful to have co-founders who um, who had uh, who had experience and experience in a lot of the things that that I did not have, and I think mm-hmm. that's been a, a, a real blessing for me because it's allowed me to f- allowed me to focus on, uh, on some of the things that, that I'm strongest in. And, um, mm-hmm. I think we've been able to escape some of the, um, uh, some of the sort of challenges that, you know, your sort of typical, uh, early stage startup with, uh, first time founders,
0: uh, would have, uh, as a result mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. Super interesting. And who were the initial backers of upstart?
1: yeah, so we had um, we had a group of uh, of VCS that invested in uh, the sort of seed round of the company, largely on uh, the sort of combination of uh, my co-founders experience and uh, also um, sort of the, I would say the, uh, the the interestingness of the idea and that actually got us through um, a couple rounds of, of funding. Um, mm-hmm. uh, some of those investors have subsequently uh, stuck around for, the, uh, the the business that we've now built, and and some mm-hmm. uh, were really uh, more
0: um, uh, investors for the the ISA concept. Got it. So a year into the ISA concept, you're like, yeah, our users are a little too special. Um, we're treating them uh, a, a little too specially, and we're kind of giving each one an economics lesson. So this might not be a good idea. Right. How do you how do you think about you know what you do next?
1: Yeah. So um, so we didn't, uh, we, didn't have, uh, uh, we didn't have no successes. Uh, we did in right. some sense uh, have some things that were working for us. And if you think of kind of the original um, uh, sort of pillars of the business, if you will, uh, at that time, I really think of it as three things. The first mm-hmm. was this hypothesis that there are a lot of uh, mostly young people uh, who need money and have a hard time accessing it. Uh, there was a second hypothesis that we could, uh, using uh, using our sort of uh, abilities to build predictive models, identify which of those people uh, would be good people to give money to, and uh, mm-hmm. you know implicitly expect to get it back from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the sort of third hypothesis was that, uh, and we should package it up in an income share agreement, mm-hmm. and uh, and. What we found, sort of, was that there was a very strong response to number one. Clearly, a ton of people interested in this problem. Uh, we had a ton of people signing up at the top of the funnel. Like anything we did, like the response was very strong. So mm-hmm. I think there was good validation for yes, there's there, there's sort of sort of a real need here. Um, mm-hmm. We made a lot of progress on on number two, um, and we really did feel like you know e- even though it was early, we had. Um, we had some uh, some differentiated ability to to make predictions that that was really interesting. And at the time we were focused on making income predictions, but you could pretty clearly see the path between that and, and making predictions relevant to uh, to a loan repayment, where obviously, you know future income is is quite important as well. and uh, And the third hypothesis was a flop. And um, at least in the context of our business, and mm-hmm. so, uh, in, in some ways, the, the kind of simple answer was, well, if you just keep one and two and drop three, what, mm-hmm. what are you left with? And, um, and the answer was, uh, was, was alone. Alone was sort of something that in some sense, one of the oldest businesses that's, that's, that, that exists. It's really been around since I, I would claim the beginning of, of human civilization, people mm-hmm. lending other people's stuff and, and hoping to mm-hmm. get it back, um, mm-hmm. And uh, and so in that sense, you sort of know that there's consumer demand for loans, there's consumer understanding of loans. And um, it was also, of course, the time when uh, there was sort of this P2P loan marketplace uh, industry taking off um, some businesses like Lending Club and Prosper and others that that were really kind of growing fast. And so that was another data point that there's a ton of demand for, for loans. Now, we didn't just want to be another loan business. There was no need for that in, in the market. I think that's plenty well served. Um, but there was a need for uh, sort of you know hypothesis one and two, which was uh, someone to, to serve these sort of uh, borrowers who are being overlooked. And again, we started with a focus on that younger borrower because there clearly was a, a sort of big hole there in the market. And then mm-hmm. the second, uh, a, a need for someone who could actually figure out which of those people, um, were, uh, were going to, to repay since that was Mm -hmm. the, uh, fundamental reason they, they were underserved in the first place. And since we felt Mm -hmm. we actually, um, you know, had those things, uh, that was a a natural place for us to go. Um, Mm -hmm. there were some, there were some tricky things about it. Like we actually didn't know what they would use the loans for. Um, and Mm -hmm. that took us a while to figure out. And there were some unknowns, but I think enough known things to, to kind of make that leap. And, um, uh and so over the course of a few months we we did that and uh
0: and it worked out that's super interesting so i feel like this this story of like hey we found this um demographic of borrowers that is actually prime um but but nobody else recognizes as such as such so we extended credit to them and it worked out is something you hear for a lot of different businesses so you know sofwhite sofi did it with uh Recently graduated business school students, or, or maybe even people going into business school. Nova Credit does it for um, immigrants. What, what were the demographics that you found? Yeah,
1: so there there are a lot of businesses that are uh, very demographic focused. Um, we are not quite that, but uh, we still have we still have some. Um, so when we when we got started in the loan business, there definitely was uh, sort of a, a younger uh, tint to our uh, our borrower profile because of the basic problem that younger borrowers have shorter credit histories, typically lower credit scores, um, and so it's harder to underwrite them if you only underwrite based off uh, someone's credit history. And um, and so we could take uh, a whole bunch of other factors, things like their education history or their work history, um, or sometimes information about uh, their their kind of digital history, and um, and underwrite based off that that, that would um, give us enough signal to to make a useful prediction. And so what we ended up with were, uh, I would say, you know, there there are, there are a number of businesses uh, out there that. Uh, do this kind of cream skimming, where they they say, "Well, let's find the very, very best of a certain pool um, and uh, and lend to those people at, at extraordinarily low rates." Um, and um, we were never that. Uh, our goal was always we actually want to find uh, we actually want to find the really undervalued people, the people that are hard to find. Um, and and so ours was going to be a sort of uh, finding. Uh, I don't want to say needles in the haystack because we actually think the needles are everywhere. Um, but there's that needle in the haystack notion where it's it's sort of hard to tell um, which of the the people in a pool um, are these undervalued people, and it's not it's not as simple as you know find all the Stanford uh, MBAs. I think that's that's a very simple. Um, strategy. And I think that's a strategy that that a number of companies have pursued to great success, it definitely was not ours, we felt that was a a place well served in the market. And again, we were very focused on, let's find uh, that segment of people who are not well served. And and almost by definition, that meant that it wasn't going to be an easily definable group, right? So if I could just tell you in one sentence, here's the group of people, then, uh, then it would probably be well served, because it was so easy to identify. And so I think of our business kind of like, we're constantly kind of looking for uh, all different crevices. And in those crevices, there are certain borrowers that um, sort of have been, have fallen through uh, for, for one reason or another. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, and and using a variety of machine learning techniques uh, and a whole bunch of alternative data, we're able to uh, pick those people out better than uh, than other lenders can and therefore offer them loans where others might reject and offer them mm-hmm. lower APRs where others might be higher.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean that's interesting because I feel like a machine learning model would work particularly well um, for uh, within a certain demographic, and then once you sort of expand it to the entire population, it feels like it's more prone to breaking. Like it feels like there's more there are more features that are harder to correlate, et cetera. Um, and I guess what you're kind of saying is, hey, we, we built a model that actually works broadly.
1: Yes and no. I I would say that um, you're definitely right that if you build a model with one kind of training population and and try to generalize it, you're generally going to have problems. Um, uh, And and certainly, you know, we we see that. Um, But I think what what we've built uh, in in almost a meta sense is like uh, we've built sort of a a good process for uh, for building and expanding the scope of our models. So certainly true when we started out when we started lending back in 2014. Um, we, we were pretty good at that kind of a uh, young borrower in their kind of mid twenties, um, and, and less, less competent elsewhere. Right. So by the time mm-hmm. someone had a thick credit history, really, we had little to no differentiation in our model at that time. Um, mm-hmm. but sort of incrementally on the margins, we sort of, um, got a little better and, and broaden the scope a little bit at a time. And that's just through an iterative process of getting more data. There was also mm-hmm. a lot that we did deliberately to kind of broaden that, that data set sort of a whole bunch of, uh, what I call, um, small data problem, uh, solutions where you just are looking for third party data sets that you can use to augment your training. But each one has some some limitations and drawbacks that you have to sort of in a, uh, as best you can way, uh, try to try to solve for. And Mm -hmm. um, I think in terms of building out the team and kind of building out the kinds of uh, the kinds of work we were willing to do, we were just a little bit uh, a little bit more willing to get our hands dirty in dealing mm-hmm. with difficult data sets that didn't, you know, perfectly fit the, the structure, couldn't be joined perfectly. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that um, that's really helped us to, to broaden, broaden the model. Um, and over, you know, we've been now doing this for uh, for over five years and um, and incrementally over that time have gotten into a broader and broader scope until today, um, we really feel that for um, the very sort of large majority of the U.S. population, um, uh, we have a model that is significantly uh, differentiated, much better able to separate uh, good risks from bad ones, and we've got mm-hmm. uh, we've got the numbers to show that. Um, now, mm-hmm. if you told me, "Hey, can you take your model and go underwrite in India?" I would say, mm-hmm. "Not not right away, right? I, I definitely would not mm-hmm. put my own money behind the model uh, mm-hmm. if it had to run tomorrow in India." But if you mm-hmm. gave us two years to work on. Um, you know, uh, generalizing the model to that population, we probably could do it mm-hmm. because we have built up such a sort of good uh, process and uh, and team for for doing that kind of work.
0: Mm-hmm. Is the so I guess want to I want to return to this, but you mentioned um, a few minutes ago that it took you guys a while to figure out what people were um, using the the funds for, um, and so how did you figure that out, and and what are what's the target of the funds of, of most upstart loans?
1: Yeah. Um this is a, a kind of a funny story. When when we were, you know, debating the the pivot to loans, um mm-hmm. I remember personally my in, in my kind of uh short-sightedness, I I made the sort of argument, I was like, you know, I just can't think of what people will use loans for. I don't think there's any <laughs> use for them. And even if we can be really smart at uh underwriting this and, you know, there's there's these sort of young people who others aren't serving. Like I can't think of what they'll do with the loans, so it just I don't think there's going to be a big market here. And I uh, th- my best use case I could think of was coding boot camps, and that's in some ways reflects how naive I was. Um, mm-hmm. But I, yeah. I just thought, okay, well here's the size of the coding boot camp market. That's going to be our market, you know, potential. And um, and it turns out that coding boot camps are one percent of our use of funds today. Um, and the large majority, about 80% is, uh, is credit card refinancing. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, and of course, you know, that's, that's, I think, one of these, uh, one of these just uh, classic stories of, uh, of your sort of personal blind spots, um, because I didn't have a lot of experience with that. I just didn't think of that. And, uh, and of course, that is something that a huge portion of the population uh, Really uh, finds uh, very challenging to deal with, and of course, is a huge problem if you've got fifteen thousand dollars of credit card debt that's accumulating interest at twenty two percent, which is those are real numbers that, that that we see on a fairly regular basis. Um, then, uh, then that's that's a real sort of drain on uh, on your ability to to have the life you want, and if you can. Mm-hmm. Refinance that at a much lower rate. You know, maybe you can cut the rate in half. You commit mm-hmm. yourself to a series of payments. You consolidate it into sort of one, uh, one payment stream. That's that's a huge improvement, and of course can save you a lot of money and uh, and can get you on a path to getting out of that credit card debt. Um, and so that's that's about eighty percent of the use of funds that we see today. Um, mm-hmm. And um, uh, and the market for that is uh, is enormous uh, because of how
0: much credit card debt there is. Yeah what was the journey going from like hey I can't really think of uh, any use other than boot camps to like oh 80% of our funds go to credit card debt
1: yeah it was almost um it was like you know sometimes they say about startups that when you find product market fit it's just like almost like nothing else you do really matters and it was almost sort of like that where you know as I'd mentioned we've been trying all this stuff like a b testing like the uh, color of the buttons and and all these sort of now seemingly silly things at, at that scale, and um, we we had, you know we had been fighting for uh, one um, you know one income share agreement uh, per day, and then we we turn on the loan product and mm-hmm. uh, and you know the first week we probably did three per day without actually doing any marketing or, or really mm-hmm. um, uh, having any kind of optimized funnel. And Mm -hmm. we thought at that time, because we were so hesitant to give up on the income share idea, that we were going to support both products side by side. And um, Mm -hmm. I I guess one of the things that I'll take credit for is like, after after about three days of the loan product, I I realized this new product is something that people want in a way Mm -hmm. that obviously the old one wasn't. And it Mm -hmm. just makes no freaking sense to keep the old one around. And so Mm -hmm. uh, after putting in, unfortunately, several months of engineering work for, uh, sort of supporting this dual product world, we decided to, um, uh, to sunset the income share product and just focus on loans. And, um, you know, now, uh, now we, we, we are doing, um, uh, you know, I, I said, we did about $3 million of income share agreements in, in a year. And now we do several times that, uh, on, on almost every day.
0: Mm -hmm. Wow so I want to go back to um, the model that you've developed and, and what it's unique to so it, it's it seems like <clears throat> it's comp- it's particularly suited for identifying quality borrowers who are looking to take out five ten fifteen thousand dollars to repay credit card debt does does this model stop working were you to try to use it to assess risk for a car loan or a mortgage
1: yeah so I, I think Mortgage uh, is a totally different beast um, for a lot of reasons, mostly because uh, in the mortgage, most of the risk has to do with the the house rather than the, the borrower because you've got so much valuable collateral there. Um, now in auto, uh, actually auto is something we are very, very interested in. Um, because mm-hmm. the size of most auto loans is not materially different than our loans, so our loan range mm-hmm. goes from 1k to 50k, um, where mm-hmm. typically it's sort of in the teens. That's not mm-hmm. so different than a lot of auto loans, uh, especially in uh, in used car financing. Again, you know, there's sort of a, a tendency that we have to mm-hmm. focus on the parts of the market that have uh, sort of more needs. We're not super interested in the primest parts of the market. Um, so mm-hmm. maybe. Um, maybe you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't necessarily uh, have the types of financing challenges that a lot of uh, a lot of people would have. Um, but uh, but those are sort of very real problems and we think kind of the bigger problems worth solving. So when we think about someone financing a used car, that's that's a really interesting problem because some of the rates that people have to have to pay, even though it's secured, are actually you know in the double digits they can they can get pretty high and um, and so there's real um, risk to be, separated there. and if we can do that again, there's sort of a similar um, potential to really cut rates down. Now it's it's again, it's not it's not something we can turn on overnight. so it's it's something we're investing a lot of uh, research into uh, to make sure that in addition to understanding that consumer, we also understand the collateral. But if you think mm-hmm. about it, an auto loan really is, there's you're underwriting the risk of a, of, of a consumer and you're underwriting the risk of a car, and you sort of need to understand those distinct elements. We think we've mm-hmm. got a really good grasp on the consumer. It's going to be the mm-hmm. same consumer that, that we lend to today, but, mm-hmm. uh, but we don't today have much of a grasp on the car. And so, mm-hmm. um, and so we've been putting a lot of work into that second piece. And when we feel good about that,
0: I think you'll see us um, being active in that market. Super interesting. Are there any other um, types of assets or t- types of loans that you guys are thinking of expanding into? Yeah, so so generally um, the type of uh,
1: the type of product we're interested in is one where it's it's a consumer product uh, and where the risk of the consumer uh, is central to the transaction um, and uh, um, uh, and where the the consumer um, is. Uh, uh, has at least sometimes a hard time uh, getting affordable financing. I think those three properties are, are pretty central, and, and so if you look at those, I think there's uh, there's there's a number of products that fit, but the ones that kind of you come up the most, obviously personal loans have have a big version of this. We do a lot of refinancing of credit cards, but of course you know if you if you go to the source there, there's there's some interesting problems to be solved uh, in credit cards themselves. Um, mm-hmm. There's uh, you know auto, as we talked about, is interesting. Um, uh, and, uh, and of course, student loans being, being the other one, I think those are some of the sort of major categories where, um, these criteria get met. Um, there are a couple right. other, uh, c- categories outside, but in terms of the big asset classes that everybody knows about and talks about, I think these are the ones that, um, that, that we have our eye on and that we, we do at least, um, we have at least some sort of,
0: uh, uh initiatives ongoing with. Got it. I want to talk about the uh, the source of funds for a second. So some startups have a warehouse line of credit. Um, some startups securitize uh, debt and sell it off. I don't think there are any startups that actually lend off their own balance sheet yet. how does how does it work at upstart?
1: yeah. so so we've got uh, a slightly different uh, business model than uh, than most uh, lenders, mostly because we actually, uh, we actually conceptualize ourselves as a technology platform first and foremost, uh, where the sort of uh, lending uh, is is an application built on top of that. And, and the reason I say that is is you can probably tell from this conversation, we are super, super heavily indexed on the um, on the differentiated ability to to underwrite. Um, and actually that that means a little bit more than just uh, you know doing the math. There's also the component of, well, you have to verify the information so that and collect it in an easy way. Um, otherwise your users just drop off and disappear. So there's this whole thing about what percentage of people we can do, highly automated, et cetera, et cetera. And so a uh, core technology platform uh, is um, is really what the business is. and then it's like, okay, well, how do we bring that to market and that's the application layer. Um, mm-hmm. And in terms of the application layer, what we've really done is we've um, we've built a, uh, a business called Powered by Upstart, which really mm-hmm. is uh, where we uh, where we partner with banks uh, who are, are looking to have uh, consumer loan programs uh, that mm-hmm. um, uh, are sort of uh, more technology forward than uh, than they might uh, traditionally have if they built it in house, mm-hmm. and um, and so we we work with a number of banks, um, uh, almost uh, almost ten banks at this point uh, who. Mm-hmm. Uh, in different ways uh, will uh, will lend so they they can actually do it uh, in a white label way using their brand uh, or mm-hmm. if they prefer they don't have to use their brand so depending on you know whether brand matters to them there are different configurations available some mm-hmm. of the banks are uh, actually many of the banks are uh, are just keeping the loans on balance sheet because that's the business they're in some of mm-hmm. the banks uh, after they they have actually um you know more limited balance sheets so while they keep some on balance sheet they will uh, have capital markets programs that uh, that sell off the rest or securitize the rest, um, mm-hmm. and we 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 actually assist in some of those um, mm-hmm. uh, in some of those programs. Where, for example, we've uh, we've uh, sort of been a, a sponsor of uh, a number of securitizations uh, that uh, that have been done. Um, that's mostly through one of our bank partners, Cross River, who was our first bank partner. Um, mm-hmm. uh and uh, and we'll actually have uh, some others that that will participate in securitization programs. So I would mm-hmm. say it's it's a mixture, but sort of at its core it's uh, it's bank driven uh, sort of banks uh, 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 originating the loans and keeping them on their balance sheet. and then sometimes when uh, when it makes sense they will move those loans off either via whole loan sales,
0: batch sales or securitizations. Got it. So the banks are actually seeing the traditional loan economics. Um, And and what sort of economics do you guys see?
1: Yeah, so um, we earn uh, essentially two fees um, on... Uh, I would say up to two fees, or really up mm-hmm. to three fees, on on each uh, loan transaction. Uh, mm-hmm. The first is a uh, what we call a kind of origination uh, processing fee that is paid mm-hmm. uh, by the bank to us. Um, that's mm-hmm. really a fee for doing the underwriting, doing the verification, doing sort of providing the technology that that makes all of this possible, and that's mm-hmm. uh, paid on a per loan basis. Mm-hmm. Then there's um, then there's a uh, a sort of marketing services fee um and this is for um we have uh you know we run marketing programs that that drive users to upstart.com uh where mm-hmm. they can actually be matched with any of our bank partners um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and so if, uh, some banks are perfectly happy to run their own marketing programs, um, uh, but mm-hmm. some banks mm-hmm. prefer for us to direct the traffic to them. And mm-hmm. so in the latter model, uh, there's a marketing services fee uh, that's charged on a per, uh, successfully referred customer basis. Mm-hmm. And then, mm-hmm. uh, and then finally there's, there's a servicing fee where again, it's, it's an optional service. The bank can decide to have, um, us service the loan, uh, or they could mm-hmm. decide to service it themselves. Totally optional. And mm-hmm. if they have a service it, then there's a servicing fee. So really, mm-hmm. you know, the core business is built on that technology processing fee. Um, yeah. But uh, there's sort of optional additions, which are marketing services
0: fee and a sort of loan servicing fee. This is fascinating because I actually had, had been thinking of Upstart as as a lender, but it really sounds more like a tech platform that offers sort of key services, lending related services to banks, and those services are. Um, underwriting, marketing, and servicing.
1: That's right. Yep. Yeah. It's three distinct services. You have to buy number one uh, to work with us because that's really Mm -hmm. why you would work with us. Um, Mm -hmm. But number two and three are also a sort of significant ways we can add value for,
0: for banks who want that. Mm -hmm. And was it this way from the start?
1: Uh, not always from the start. So uh, uh, a few years ago, we had a business model that looked a little bit more similar to um, sort of uh, uh, some other online lenders, where the business model was much more focused on having uh, you know one uh, one kind of bank partner. We are us originating under our brand, um, and um, and then us sort of uh, uh, doing securitizations or, or selling off the loans, and then earning an origination fee from the borrower um Mm -hmm. today uh we've moved to a model where uh you know the origination fees really the banks can set them many of our bank partners actually have no origination fee because that's what they you know they would rather have for their user that you know they Mm -hmm. feel it would be better for conversion rates um Mm -hmm. and customer experience so uh Mm -hmm. it's entirely up to them how they want to deal with the origination fee the economics between them and the borrower is between them um but mm-hmm. then we we sort of charge these fees so um it's um uh, it's not totally different and in many ways like the day to day of what we do feels a little mm-hmm. bit like being a lender um but the business is structured so that we can maximize the the impact of our technology investments where mm-hmm. really um about 2 years ago we realized what we are really good at is not necessarily being a lender; it's building technology. And um, and there's more than one lenders that should have access to this technology if we want as many end borrowers as possible to benefit from the underwriting accuracy improvements that that we've created. And so we reoriented our
0: business to to focus on that. Super interesting. Um, when you when you partner with a bank, I imagine the the key. Metric that you want to convince them will will grow if they adopt your platform um, is the conversion rate. Uh, a because such as have, have a better underwriting model, so a bunch of people who were being turned away before now will get loans, and B because you might have a better UX for getting information from from applicants. How? How much better is the conversion rate with Upstart versus whatever it is prior?
1: Yeah. So there there are some numbers that are hard to know for sure and some that we actually have Fair amount of confidence on, um, so I'll start with with the ones that we know pretty confidently, and those are um, uh, those start with underwriting because in underwriting we actually we keep um, a version of what we call a traditional underwriting model that is uh, you know it's it's not it's not a straw man it's we made a legitimate and sincere effort using you know kind of traditional credit variables in a sort of traditional logistic regression we actually had some outside. Um, uh, outside entities help us with that uh, to just sort of make sure we're making a, a fair representation. And we keep mm-hmm. it as a benchmark model and we use it actually in, in a lot of testing. It's actually been, um, uh, it's something we, we've, uh, we've showed to regulators that, that we work with um, to show sort of the uh, credit access impact that, that we've had. Um, so it's something mm-hmm. that, that we're pretty serious about and we're able to use it to benchmark against our model so we can see uh, the the difference in approval rates and the difference in uh, in APRs offered, um, mm-hmm. and it's it's large. It's um, we're able to offer um, uh, greater than twenty five percent increase in approval rates uh, compared wow. to that traditional model, and then mm-hmm. uh, furthermore we're able to offer uh, something like three hundred twenty five basis points of APR reduction uh, uh, for the people approved. So we're approving twenty five percent more people. We are. Lowering the APRs by 325 basis points, so that's 3.25 percentage points, and um, we have a good mapping from that to conversion rate. So when you uh, when you put that together, you know we're talking about almost uh, almost double the conversion rate that um, that that you would get uh, if you were using that traditional model. And that doesn't even yet give you um, you know factor in the sort of process improvements we've made. Uh, we have about 70% of the loans uh, that we do are fully automated meaning there's there's no manual touch on our side and there's no like documents or anything that the borrower has to upload so um that uh that is something that has significant conversion boosts. So when you put it all together, we think the the net end-to-end of, uh, sort of conversion impact is maybe somewhere two to three X um, what you would traditionally get. Now, of course, mm-hmm. uh there's the question of what traditional means. And and actually we've seen some uh we 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 think that's um we, we think for many banks the real impact is much bigger than that just compared to sort of
0: legacy systems that that they may have. Mm-hmm. This is fascinating. I mean, it it feels like every bank in the U.S. should be knocking on your door. What's what's the sort of when you guys approach banks, you know, what is their biggest objection, despite the uh, potential massive increase in conversion?
1: Yeah, in some ways, it's 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 almost too massive. Um, uh, we've <laughs> it's 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 such um it's such a different way of doing things from uh from how uh how many banks have traditionally done it that it's, mm-hmm. it's sort of a huge process to to understand everything, uh, to make sure sort of all of the internal stakeholder groups um, uh, are able to sign off, um, to sort of um, uh, fully get comfortable. There's to really understand, you know, the work, for example, that we've done with the, the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, to, mm-hmm. to know that, you know, yes, we've really made sure that um, our models are fair, that they um, uh, that, you know, they, they expand access, don't reduce access, things that, um, you know, could, mm-hmm. could certainly cause, uh, problems for a bank if, if not done right. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, so I, I, but, you know, I, on the whole, I, I do think it is, um, it is moving forward and it's, it's something mm-hmm. where, uh, we're growing at, at a very fast rate right now. So I think there's, there's a lot of interest, um, but, uh, but it's certainly, um, it's certainly not a, not a small change. It's not like you're adding one little feature that is basically what you were doing before, but now 5% better. This is, you know, it, it sounds big because it is big um,
0: in terms mm-hmm. of, of how much of a change it is in process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Going back to the, the the models that you've created, um, you, you mentioned there are a few features that, you know, are, are sort of, they make sense. So you can look at a person's uh, career history. You can look at where they went to school. What are some of the More non-trivial, non-obvious features that determine borrow quality um, that you feel that 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 you're okay talking about on in public.
1: Hmm. Yeah, it's it's tricky because a lot of the a lot of the ones that are 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 subtle and unintuitive um, have to do with some of the the subtleties of of the user behavior. Um, So Mm -hmm. choices that that they make that. uh, would typically reflect something about you know how in a rush they are for the loan or mm-hmm. um, or mm-hmm. sort of how um, uh, I guess how uh, how sort of desperate they might be to to get the mm-hmm. money and. Um, uh, and so those things, we're, we're always careful to talk about them because they sort of have this property where if it became commonly known that this is the right. behavior you you do or don't do, right. um, then, right. the, you know, maybe fraudsters would respond in a certain way or, or people might game the system. So um, right. I guess I'll just sort of say that there's, there's a whole bunch of signal in the behavior of the user. Uh, and yeah. typically we... Our intuition for why that stuff matters in the machine learning models is that it's a good indicator of the kind of uh, hidden the information hidden to us, which is typically um, how urgently and and desperately someone needs the money, which uh, which is uh, an important signal.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think you know you you hear these stories a lot. I think there's it's either LendUp or OnDeck, one one of these um, startups that that figured out like, hey, actually we can figure out how good of a borrower is based on uh, how much they toggle, they move the slider around that determines their loan amount, um, so, which is which is similar to what you're talking about. Of, of all these behaviors, you measure, can are you how are, can you talk about how how many of them are behaviors that exist within your platform versus outside? Um,
1: yeah, well, I mean, I guess obviously we we look at a lot of factors that are outside the platform. Um, I think those tend to be mostly, but not always a uh, little more, uh, intuitive. I think there's, you know, there's some stuff about like how, uh, how you found us, how you came to us and, and some of the mm-hmm. sort of the path data there that, um, uh, that, that, that is interesting. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, certainly a lot of it is, um, is how you're engaging with us, um, how you're sort of, um, uh, uh certain, you know, measures of speed and, uh, uh, there's the, sort of the some combinations of speed and kind of how you're accessing us in terms of what kind of uh, technology you're using, uh, things like this that that um, that are quite
0: useful. So when when I think about the moat around Upstart, it seems like you guys have built this highly sophisticated proprietary underwriting model over you know almost seven years. That would be really hard for anyone to replicate. Is that is that fair? Are there any other parts of the moat? Uh,
1: yes, actually, I, I think, um, I think at first it's, it sounds like the moat is all in kind of the the technical work we've put in over the past seven years. And I think that's, that's certainly true, but you know, there are a lot of very smart, uh, people out there and, and I'm sure with enough resources and enough of them working together, they could, um, you know, they could close some of that gap over time. Um, but I do think it's actually much harder than just a pure technical problem, though. I think the technical problem is, is, is interesting and, and non-trivial. I think, uh, yeah. There's some there's some pretty significant other pieces. So you know I mentioned earlier our work with the CFPB. Um, that 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 was something that we also put uh, quite a lot of effort into and a lot of time. Um, so there's in in consumer lending in, in the U.S. There's there's a lot of regulation. Uh, some of it for very good reason. And uh, one of those areas that's very challenging is. Um, is fair lending uh where mm-hmm. you know there's questions about whether the models you're building are uh, are going to sort of unfairly discriminate against uh, certain groups of people and mm-hmm. um that's you know that's traditionally been something that uh that has really um uh really kind of uh uh, concerned, uh, banks and other lenders when, uh, when looking at alternative forms of data and, and models. And so we had to do a lot of, uh, a lot of work, uh, with the regulators in, in understanding, uh, how to measure this, uh, and devising a lot of our devising and building a lot of our own kind of, uh, almost compliance algorithms, if you will, to, uh, mm-hmm. to understand, um, how to, how to evaluate that, quantify that. Um, and, and so that was sort of a whole area and there's maybe more broadly sort of, I think, uh, a kind of, um, uh, as, as sort of technically savvy as, as you need to be to do what we do, I think you need to be almost even more uh, kind of uh, compliance savvy uh, and mm-hmm. kind of deal with the intersection of the two things where you've got these problems that the the sort of pure technology folks don't necessarily uh, know how to deal with from a compliance standpoint and the pure compliance folks don't know how to deal with from a tech standpoint. And you know, mm-hmm. I think some of the work we've done at that intersection is really interesting and, and really proprietary. Um mm-hmm. so that's I would say one whole area. Then there's the mm-hmm. intersection between kind of the math and the back end and the user in the front end, which is pretty mm-hmm. challenging. Like you can do a lot of interesting work in the back end, but if at the end of the day it puts your user in in sort of into a flow that is very difficult to get through. That mm-hmm. that can be a real problem and we know that firsthand because when we started uh, lending in 2014, you know, our end-to-end conversion rate for our funnel was something on the order of 2%. Um, and, uh, and since then, you know, it has increased by, uh, more than I call it a factor of seven, maybe eight. And so, oh. uh, that's, that's just, uh, just night and day. And, and that's not been sort of, you know, we found one cool thing. And in the mi- middle, it flipped, that's been an almost linear graph between, you know, five years ago and, and now, and that's just all on the sort of user facing end, but really resulting from some of the, the problems, if you will, that, um, that using our alternative data and having to collect it and verify it created. Um, and, uh, and it creates even more problems You know when you look at your acquisition funnel, like how are you going to actually target people when the targeting systems that exist today are largely optimized for a lender using kind of a FICO-based underwriting model. Um, and uh, and there's sort of an entire set of challenges and models we've built there and so mm-hmm. it's a sort of ver- very vertically uh sort of up and down the stack kind of problem not just you mm-hmm. got to get the math right you do have to get mm-hmm. the math right uh, and if you get it wrong it has devastating financial consequences plenty of sort of uh, companies that have tried and, and failed and, and as a result you know uh uh no longer exist because of mm-hmm. uh because of mistakes made in trying out new models so i mm-hmm. think that's that's certainly you know a challenge but then you've got sort of the full vertical stack of other challenges that intersect with the mathematical challenges to overcome.
0: Mm -hmm. Super interesting. Um, can you talk a bit about like from a quantitative perspective, how well upstart is doing right now?
1: Yeah. So I guess I'll say, uh, the business is doing, uh, extremely well. I mean, we, we really couldn't be more happy. Um, I'd say that, uh, we have um, our, our top line has been growing very nicely. We, uh, in terms of uh, revenue run rate, we have grown uh, almost uh, almost triple digits year over year, um, and uh, have been uh, uh, have been doing that pretty consistently. We are profitable, um, and uh, uh, I think soon to be not in a trivial way profitable. So not like we made one dollar, um, you <laughs> know, and and say we're profitable, but I think we will. Um, actually uh, be generating um, you know a meaningful amount of cash uh, relative to uh, you know what what we've raised, which is, uh, I think, in today's climate, uh, a modest amount. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and uh, and, you know, I guess the the other important uh, metric, of course, is, uh, the the loan performance. And the loan performance is, is spectacular. Um, when we look at it on a FICO adjusted basis, uh, we consistently produce losses that are half what you would typically see for that FICO range at other lenders. Um, and that has strengthened across our cohorts. So you see um, very strong performance from the start, and improvement, uh, and, and sort of further improvements as time has gone on. And so, you know, for for a business in, in in lending technology, uh, uh, triple digit top line growth, uh, strong profits, and um, and uh, strong and improving uh, underwriting performance. I think those are those are the key numbers, and uh,
0: we're super thrilled with how all of those are going. Got it. That's great. Zooming out from Upstart to the sort of broader uh, startup lending space, um, or, or startups who are involved in the lending business, which companies do you think are are most interesting, and what uh, sort of non-consensus views do you have about that space?
1: Yeah, so I would say that um, you know, lending is something that was really hot a few years ago and has since become really cold. Um, mm-hmm. What I mean is if, if you look at the heyday of um, online lending startups, it was around 2015. Um, it felt like there was a new company funded every week. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and since then, a lot of those companies uh, have, have sort of faded from existence. Um, and some of the ones that had uh, really um, sort of... Uh, flying valuations at the time uh, have since come to have really low valuations uh some of those have since gone public um mm-hmm. and uh and you know their stocks have not done well um and i, I think um uh, and I think a lot of that is is uh is for for good reason but um perhaps sort of uh, I think there's a bit too much kind of like Either the whole industry is awesome, or or the whole industry is terrible. And of course, mm-hmm. uh, lending more than other businesses, but of course, all businesses, but lending especially is a business where, you know, anyone can for a short period of time make great numbers um, uh, and sort of take advantage of sort of small uh, uh, arbitrage opportunities in in a kind of a macro climate. Um, but uh, but there's sort of real challenges is whether you can actually thread the needle of of doing something that is uh, is sort of defensively different and, um, uh, and, and we'll be able to persist over time. Um, and, uh, and so when we look at, uh, when we look at lending, we sort of think, well, you, there's really uh, a couple ways you can do that. One mm-hmm. is you can have a proprietary, uh, sort of customer acquisition trick. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I think there's, there's some companies that have built a really good, um, uh, really good systems for that. So uh, if you look at Credit Karma, for example, you know they they had this sort of clever idea. Hey, if you give people something that's relatively cheap, a free credit score, um, you actually give them something that that's quite valuable to them, and it will draw a lot of them in, and uh, and is something that people not only want once, but want all the time. And mm-hmm. um, and then from there, you've sort of got customer acquisition nailed. Um, and so that I think that's that's sort of a category of company that we think is super interesting. Uh, Then there's, um, then there's companies, of course, that have uh, proprietary underwriting. That's kind of the next, Mm -hmm. if you think of the lending kind of uh, funnel, there's kind of, you've got to acquire the customer, you underwrite the customer, uh, you, uh, and and you sort of uh, service the customer. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and so the underwriting piece of, of course, we're, I guess, uh, bullish on ourselves. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And then, uh, and then. Uh, you get to sort of the last part, and, and you know, servicing isn't uh, isn't necessarily about uh, servicing, though some of it is. I think there's some real technology improvements to be made there. Um, I think mm-hmm. there's also um, there's also the question of what you do with kind of the the customer uh, lifetime value once you've developed that relationship, because it mm-hmm. is it is um, it is something where. You know the user has spent a lot of time with you doing something that's pretty sensitive, and uh, and and hopefully you can sort of find uh, more ways to to do something with that. And I think there's some companies trying. I don't think that that one has been totally cracked yet in terms of what the sort of ongoing relationship between a fintech company and its its customer is. But I think that's mm-hmm. one where you know there, there's a lot of people working on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I guess like throughout, you know, I think there's 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 technology and data providers, and I think some of that is just. You know, I think almost tried at this point that data is uh, is key to all of this, and if you can become the central data uh, hub, that's uh, that's super valuable. And so, you know, traditionally it was the credit bureaus; they've they've built uh, really strong, defensible businesses on having you know the central source of data that everybody pulls from. But now mm-hmm. uh, there's other sources of data that people are really interested in, data like uh, bank account transactions, for example. That mm-hmm. um, that a lot of uh, companies, us included, are using, and um, uh, and you know, someone who can establish that will be uh, will be also in a great position. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Super interesting, Paul. This has been a fascinating walkthrough of the history of Upstart and uh, a touch on um, the sort of mat- more macro view on the lending space. Um, I want to I want to touch on the human side of all of this over the course of, of being the co-founder of Upstart, what is the most important human slash empathetic lesson you've you've learned?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, one thing I, I didn't really expect um, was just how many... Uh, different kinds of problems you'd always be running into uh, in uh, in the course of, of building a company. Um, even when things are going well, it feels like every week or sometimes every day, there's like a new problem and it's an entirely new problem. It's not like, You know, my job is to solve you know problems of flavor X, and then every once in a while I see X and I solve it. It's like you think your job is to solve problems like X, and then you sort of uh, you you learn about Y, and you've sort of Mm -hmm. never seen Y before. And then next week you've got a you've got Z, Um, Mm -hmm. and uh, and and you know this has been going on for the last seven years. And so Mm -hmm. at at some point, you know, when when that started to sort of hit, at first you're kind of just like running on adrenaline, and you're like, oh whatever, next problem I'm going to deal with it. And then after a couple of years, you're like, wow, like the problems really never stop, do they? You know, <laughs> it's like, no matter whether things are going well or poorly, there's always new problems and, uh, and they're sort of always new and they're, they're problems that you didn't necessarily expect to, to have to deal with. And, um, uh, and, uh, and at some point I, I think, um, I think I, I sort of internalized this idea that, uh, actually, uh, I shouldn't be surprised when there's new problems. It's that's just that's just what uh, building a company is, and uh, it's sort of like uh, you you kind of abstract out one layer and just say, actually, my job is solving whatever new problem arises this week, and I expect that this week there will be a new problem that is entirely surprising to me, and um, uh, and then when it comes up, I'm just that's fine because that's that's already you know what what I expect. So. Um, uh, I think that's that's something that that I've definitely kind of internalized and and decided that I'm going to be uh, just uh, I I will I will sort of intellectually acknowledge the surprise, but I won't uh, I won't emotionally respond to the surprise. It's just mm-hmm. going to for me feel like any other day because I expect every day for that to happen.
0: Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Well, Paul, thank you so much for coming on Operators Manual and uh, telling us the story of Upstart. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a great chat.